0: That picture was taken on the beach in San Diego, and that's when we left the Buddy Miles thing because Buddy was gonna he was gonna do something else, and we flew straight from Boston. We moved to San Diego, California, actually to um, Lucadia. The guy put us Marty Silva, who wanted to be our manager. He was a fan. He owned this place called Earth that was on mission beach and we played at earth every night and we opened for, we worked there for over a year and we, we were with a house band, but he bought in of the, every weekend he had, uh, some different stars that were hot on the charts at that time, like, um, uh, um, Elvin Bishop, beautiful day. Um, uh, Jeez, I mean, just all the all the the rocker, the rock artists that were coming out then, and it was like an this amazing experience. Excuse me, I dropped something. Here. It was this amazing experience because we got to play and open for Ravi Shankar. We opened for all these different people, and it was like I mean, I'm gonna plug my phone back. Plug my phone in just to make sure that it doesn't lose power now. Good idea. Can you hear me? <laughs> yeah <laughs> make sure i don't want it to go bad but um we did we we um we did um uh we pl- we opened for for everybody it was just amazing all these different uh different people lydia Pence, uh, in, in cold blood um tower power we opened for all these all these artists all these bands and stuff we opened for all that and we had we had we met all these great people became friends with them and and uh then we got the album that we had done that album we 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 had recorded that music but it hadn't been put out anywhere there was a guy named mario medias who decided he would represent the music because uh, he knew luther luther said let's get this let's get this on we need to get this on a on a on a label And so one day they called us up and said, you need to come to L.A. Warner Brothers is uh, not Warner Brothers, but Phil Walden and Frank Fenter uh, from uh, Capricorn Records out of Macon, Georgia, are interested. And I said, Macon, Georgia, that's where Otis Redding is from. (laughs) And so we went to um, we came we drove up from uh, San Diego and we met them at the Beverly Hills Hotel which is an iconic place. And they had a big suite there and Frank Fenter and Phil Walden were there. And we sit down and talk to them. And Andre was saying, we want a contract, but we don't want a contract with a bunch of legalese, you know, that's 50 pages long. We want something that's simple, straight ahead. We want write a first refusal. We want to have, make our own album covers. We want to do this. We're writing our own music and he knew what to say because he had been doing this stuff with Buddy Miles. So I'm um, me, I'm like, I felt like duh, you know, but I'm listening and learning and like a sponge absorbing everything. And um, so they said, okay, this is, the, wait, hold it, hold your, hold your point. Then they go over to this adjoining room door and they knock on the door and these two lawyers walk in. <laughs> they said, okay. Tell these guys what you're saying, what you want. These are our lawyers, and they're going to construct a contract based on what you're saying. And they sat there and took notes on legal pads for everything we're saying, and then said, Okay, we'll get back to you, and we're going to make this happen. It's like that, okay. So we left, and about a week later, they had a document drawn up, and they had done it. And our recording contract with Capricorn Records was three pages long <laughs> and we had our lawyer look at it and he said, I can't believe this. It doesn't have that. It, it's there. It's straight ahead. You guys get to do this. He was like, the lawyer himself was like, this is amazing. How did you do that? We said, we just asked for it. and he thought it was incredible. So we signed that contract and Warner brothers was the, did the distributor They were the distributors for Capricorn records. And then we got, then they used to give you money for signing like a big chunk of cash. So we got money and we moved to LA and we got a house and uh, uh, like we leased a house in Hollywood Hills. And we started really putting our band together and, and getting ready to go on the road and do some more recording. And we continued to record at record plant here in Los Angeles. Wow! And that's how the Max and band and we took that picture. We needed an album cover, and so this guy named Barry Strawberry, that was his real name, and his wife. Uh, they I used to go down to the beach and go body surfing right at, near our house in in um, in Lucadia. And I went. He came down there and took that picture of me. And they loved everybody liked that photo so much. They said, "Okay, that's the Max and." cover. And I was like, "Okay, I didn't pick it." So when the record came out and did pretty well, we were on Soul Train, um Don Don Cornelius asked me on that show, "Well, why did they how did you why did you just name the band after you?" And I said, "It wasn't my idea." And it wasn't. It was their idea. They decided that, and 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 uh, when I did that picture with my little shortcut Afro, that was very controversial. I mean, it, it was like, wow, is she African? Is she this, is she that? What is she, you know? And then you could just, and there was like, that's really a picture of me standing with the sun behind me. And uh, it just came out, it was like a great effect but it wasn't like done like that to create controversy. It was just a picture that came out that way. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it, it turned out to be a, a great uh, thing. And it became iconic in a way because then people started putting it on everything. They made stickers out of it. They did all kinds of stuff, you know. Okay. Wow,
1: well, I, I want to give you a moment to catch your breath and interject a couple of questions. Um, okay. One, one is, how and when did you get the name Max Ann?
0: Well, Max Ann was a name that was always around my uncle. I'm from Oklahoma, and it's a Native name, a Native American name. And my uncle used to call me that. My mom's older brother used to call me Max Ann, goddess of the wind. That's what it really means. So I just used that for this. And I was telling them about that. they said, okay, yeah, that's what it's going to be. Use that. And that's how it, I said, okay. Are you sure? And they're like, yeah, that's good. It's Mm -hmm. different.
1: And just so viewers know, this uh, came out in 1972. So that's the era we're talking about. And um, not only did you have that, you can't always get what you want, Stone's cover, but you also had a great version of Give Me Shelter on there.
0: Yeah. And uh, again, just trying, doing our our thing, I like the song. And if you really like a song, then, you can really hear the song inside the song. And uh, I, so that has been my leading edge, I think, for everything that I wanna do, even live performances that I do now with the bands that I work with now, the same thing. And I started them to think that way and they like working with me because they it it challenges Is When we perform live, at first when I first started leading them into free form thinking that there's more music than just that song with this song and I'll show it and I can show it, prove it to you. And they, at first they were like, oh, where, where is this going? I said, just keep playing that groove. Don't stop. I'm going to lead it and you'll hear it where the other song is there. And then I was just sing over it and they'll go like, oh, wow, I get it. So then now anything I do, it's like we the band is like
1: you froze for a moment there.
0: Yeah, you did it went out for a minute, but you're there. You're still okay. there. You're back.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So so yeah,
0: they they were, you know, they were quite uh, uh they, they liked it, and my band liked it. The Maxam band liked it. And even though we were doing our own music, we still twisted it up on stage. And that gave us an edge, and that's how we, the Earth Wind & Fire wanted us to open for them on a tour, and we did that one year as Maxam. Then we went to Europe. We were supposed to be there for, um, ended up being there for eight months and uh, playing there in different places. And, so it was fun. We did our thing.
1: How, how did you decide uh, or conceptualize what the Maxan uh, sound would be?
0: Well, again, it's based on, well, first of all, the, the musicians played a great part because, and their skills, like they weren't your average, you know, kids from a garage band, you know. They, they weren't that. Um, those guys out of, well, Andre, Buddy, and some of the other guys that were in Buddy Miles' band, the electric flag, and all those configurations that Buddy had been in. Plus, he had played with Jimi Hendrix. Uh, they, they all knew Jimi Hendrix, and I got to actually meet Jimi Hendrix before he died, all that. But um, they... Um, they had been sort of like in Omaha, which is where they were from. Marlo was from Almo Gordo, New Mexico, which is like near, you know, Area 51, <laughs> which we used to tease him constantly about not being of this world. But anyway, <laughs> but uh, they were in Omaha. There was a strong music culture. I mean, like really incredible. And in the, in the black community, especially, and a lot of really talented people came from there. And so if you were a kid growing up in that community, the older musicians that were there sort of had this fraternity, brotherhood fraternity of musicianship, where you needed to really learn how to play your instrument and do it well. And they held those kids that were growing up there to a very high standard, if they wanted to play in the clubs with them, that kind of thing. So those guys coming out like Buddy, Andre, Stemsy, Hunter, some of those people coming out there, Hank Red, these guys are incredible. I mean, like they were incredible for their age, even though they were young people, and they each, in their own right, had something special um Andre was a prodigy for real a a real live one when he was a kid he was a prodigy and Marlo was a bit of a prodigy as well our drummer was young Emilio Thomas he was from Texas he is from Texas he's still with us he he works at UCLA went there and graduated he still works for UCLA now, he, he was but
1: on he the went on- hmm? He was on this show recently.
0: E- Emilia e- em- yeah. Emory. yeah, yeah. great, talk- great guy. Talking about Johnny Guitar Watson. Yes, and he and he went and Johnny Guitar Watson was a really great friend, and used to come to my house almost every day to play my piano. He loved this baby grand piano that I had. So he would come in the door, sit down on the piano. I would make him a cup of coffee. He loved my coffee. I'd make him a cup of coffee and he would sit there and play for a couple of hours and then drink coffee and go like, okay, see you later. And they he would split. <laughs> but he was like a great friend and a really super um, talented musician as well. Really a lot of fun. And, and uh, Et had a great. After the Max Ann thing was no more, he really was was on the road with with Johnny Guitar Watson, and he did a lot with them. So and Johnny had a great following throughout Europe and everything. Do as well.
1: How did uh, how and when did romance blossom with uh, Andre? Well,
0: when I moved to um, Boston, it it was there. It was like I was living in the house. They were traveling. We didn't really live together, but we lived in the same house and that kind of thing. So he he would come over and knock on my door and say, can I invite you on a date to the kitchen? You know, <laughs> and we would go downstairs and just sit down there and talk and that kind of thing. So it just blossomed from there. Yeah, because yeah. I didn't have a boyfriend and he didn't have a girlfriend. I was like really surprised because some of the guys were like flying in these girls from, Different. Oh, I know her. She lives in Seattle and she's coming for the weekend or something like that. You know, all these girls are flying, but they weren't he wasn't bringing anybody there. And he was like, no, why should I bring a girl here when you're here? And I would be like, I don't know about that. You know, (laughs) so he was he was was very um, convincing because he really treated me so well. He really did. He treated me well. And he said, you know, he wanted me to be a force in in the industry as well. He said, a lot of girls, they want to, you know, if you're going to play the game, play the game. You Get in there and do it. And he encouraged me not to be like a girl who is like, oh, OK, you guys tell me what to do. In fact, because I didn't know, he was like, then learn, then learn how to do it. Learn what you're in. Learn what you're doing. You have talent. Your, your knowledge about this business should be should match the talent that you have. And I was like, okay. You know, so that was, to me, that was, that he was more of a progressive man than a lot of people and, and guys that were in the industry. They wanted to be the rock stars and kind of just have a string of groupie girls, you know, around. And he wasn't interested in that. He was like, more like, we can build this. We can build this and make something really happen. So you have to get your get your get your game get your game face on and let's do this you know that kind of thing. So that may something like that be, it makes a person attractive to you because oh, yeah. then it's like they care about you more like like the whole person of who you are and that kind of thing. So that's hard to say, oh no, no, I don't like you no you really like that, you know if you're young, it's like somebody validating you like that, that's easy to love. Yeah, and
1: yeah. kind of helping empower you. Exactly. Um, so when that first record uh, was out, how did you and the rest of the guys feel about, you know, how it did? Did you envision it would sell more or about what it did? And, you know, artistically and commercially, where were
0: you with it? Well, artistically, we think we, we, we wanted to make, we knew we could do better. And that was, but we like what we got coming out of the box, uh, coming out of the, you know, coming just getting out there. And we got a lot of, we were surprised. Well, we got played on a lot of college stations. We were more like underground than mainstream, mm-hmm. which was kind of like, you know, that's the romantic notion to be underground funk, you know, that kind of thing. It gives you a kind of power, but not the same kind of power that you would if you had like some big mainstream hit and that everybody was going crazy like the Beatles or something over you or something. It's not the same kind of thing, but it still gave us a kind of validation and power and empowerment. And we knew that we could do more and we wanted to do better. Plus, we were also the first band to introduce rolling instruments in America. They we got approached by Roland because we were trying to create different sounds. At the same time, um, Malcolm Cecil, those guys who built the first music computer, you know, Stevie computer Wonder. For, well, they didn't build it for Stevie Wonder, for Stevie Wonder, but they introduced it. And we were working at the record plant and record plant, because this was new technology, let them set that up in Studio B. So we were at record plant every day so we could just walk in there and see it and play with it and noodle around on it. But it was I'll tell you that it filled the room. These big giant towers filled the room. Now, Andre. Had one of the things about Andre that a lot of people didn't know was that he was very. What can I say? I don't want to say psychic because that wouldn't be the proper description of what he had but he was like he had the gift of prophecy really had a gift for it and it worked like this if if he got and needed to make a big decision he needed to sleep for about half an hour and he would just be overwhelmed with, I need to think about this. And he would go in, He had. A, we had a room in our house because we got this house together, that he could go in and lay down on this chase lounge and he would go to sleep for about 30 minutes. And when he woke up, he knew exactly what he wanted to do and how it was going to go and how it had to be. And he could tell you every aspect of what was going to happen. Every aspect of it. They're going to say this, but we're going to say this. We're going to do this, they're going to do that, but we're going to do this. And then they're going to understand why we're doing it like this. He would lay it out just like almost like like he was reading it from a script that somebody had given him. And it would be like and he would almost be saying in monotone if when they say this, we're going to do that. And we, we would just be looking straight ahead like something was operating from inside of him, but something more than just him. And he used to do that all the time, and a lot of people never saw him do it. But because I live with him, I saw him do that. And I go, "What is that?" And he goes, "I don't know. I've had it since I was a kid. Since I've been, since I was six, since I was six years old, I always had this, and I don't know why." So when we went into the thing to see that computer in that room, I was fascinated at how big it had to be. And I said, well, nobody's. Who's going to have a room in their house to do this? You know, you'd have to come. I guess they could keep it here and new people can come here and use it. And he goes, no. All of this is going. He said, technology is going to take off. It's going to really go fast. And you'll be able to put all of this in your pocket. I said, what? He said, it's going to all go all of this in your pocket. You know? And I in your pocket? He said, in your pocket. And here it is. We're on it right now. It's all right here. And I can put this in my pocket. But Andre knew that in 1972. He knew that. I mean, he knew it. He wasn't guessing at it. And he... um. He also said one day he, he laid down. He, we were watching the news and something was on. He was just watching. He goes, oh, I need to go lay down. I need to take a nap. And he went and he, just in any time. He just needed to get away, and lay down. And he would do that. And he woke up and he said, you know what? Everything, technology is getting ready to change everything. You're going to be able to just, they're just going to be able to lay down. Are you going to stand in front of this machine? It'll be able to tell you everything that's going on in your body. It's going to be able to scan you, and they'll be able to do that. And it's going to save people's lives. And it's going to make doctors be able to to, uh, say what's wrong with you. They'll be absolutely able to see a perfect picture of it. And it's just going to scan you from head to toe. Well, that's what a CT scan is. But there wasn't one when Andre was saying that this was going to happen and now they have ct scans he a lot of things that he said was coming he predicted all of those things are still coming to pass
1: was was he a sci-fi
0: fan at all yes very much so he was very much um sci-fi and Reading sci fi books and that kind of thing. And I'm a sci fi fan because my mom was a sci fi fan. And instead of like fairy tales and golden and golden, you know, Mother Goose rhymes and books, our mother was reading us Isaac Asimov and Ray Bradbury and those kind of stories. We were, you know, I remember. Can, uh, my, one of my favorite stories when I was a kid was A Canticle for Liebowitz, which was written by Asa- Isaac Asimov. That's the kind of stuff I was exposed to as a kid. <laughs> and so we had we really had a great connection with how we thought about the future, how we thought about ourselves in the future, you know, that kind of thing. And everybody in the band sort of had that cutting edge of that we wanted to do something different. So we were looking for a different sound. We wanted to do something really different. And then Roland said, you wanna represent these instruments. And then that started to create, cause they brought, they sent us all of the, the we beta tested everything for them. It would ship us all this stuff. So then we had a big studio with all of this stuff at our house. And all of these musicians like Stanley Clark and George Duke and all these people were coming to our house, you know, to see these new instruments like the SH-101 and this, these computer uh, synthesizer things that were there. That was new. And uh, Chick Korea and all these people were coming to Taj Mahal. All these people were coming to our house to see it. And it was it was the, the technology was just flying, you know. And and Andre said this was gonna happen, this is gonna happen. Music and everything is gonna change. I will never forget him saying that. And it really did. And well, it's I, think, never-
1: I think that quality is also what has helped that music, the Maxam music, stand the test of time. Well, you know, yes, um, a lot of those keyboard sounds, especially were progressive at the time, you know?
0: Exactly. And there was like nothing that you'd ever heard because those instruments had never existed before. But before we ever got them, I ever knew who Roland was, Andre knew that this was coming. He knew it. And when we walked into that room and I saw that thing, and he said, no, this is going to be, you're going to have this in your pocket. And it won't be cumbersome and big like this. And nothing is gonna be cumbersome and big like this anymore. The technology is gonna change all of that. And I had never heard the the word computer chip or anything like that. Nobody was talking that language, you know? So- I
1: I remember mid seventies, I think it was then when the first digital watch came out and it was like thousands of dollars, you know, it was that red LED. And that was like so space age.
0: Right. And I remember when um, Roger Lynn was trying to put the Lynn machine together. Um, and he had all this stuff and he was trying to think about how to do that. I said, Andre Lewis, because Andre could draw circuitry. He could tell you how something needed to work. And he could just take a sheet of paper and he would draw the circuitry like Almost like a robot. And you could draw it like freehand. And um I said, I'll bet Andre can help you. And he said, Andre? I said, Yeah, because he really knows circuitry. He really does know that. So what you need is you that he, which is like nobody knew that then. They didn't have like the Vry wasn't around, <laughs> you know, like, you know, Andre was. Be he was pre Devry, you know, and just smart. Smart, he was like he was a he was really a prodigy. And knowing this thing, that's the thing. He was he was actually friends with Jimi Hendrix because Jimi Hendrix was also a prodigy and he was designing those effects for his guitar. All of these things that guitar players have now and what they call the, the floor thing that you know, their wing that's on the floor with all their pedal boards. Jimi Hendrix invented most of those that those things they have on there. Nobody ever says Jimi Hendrix was a genius, but he was a genius of that of that order. And he was designing that kind of stuff just because he wanted something different out of those, out of his instruments. He wasn't saying, oh, I want to make a million dollars from this, but he could. That was worth a billion dollars, what he had in, this, in his pedal board. True Nobody innovation. was doing that beforehand. True innovation. Right. He was a true leader in all of that. And Andre and he had that meeting of the minds for that, because Andre played keyboards and bass and that kind of thing, but Jimmy was guitarist and, and, and so was Marlo and the echoplexes and all this all these effects and building effects that could make different things happen. Andre understood that circuitry and how it had to work and how you could get things to do different things. Um, so Roger Lynn comes up in his raggedy car that breaks down on the way because we lived up a hill. And so we they go down. E.T, uh, Marlo, Hank, and Andre, and they help him bring this thing that he had in three old, old suitcases to our house out of his car that had broken down. And they carried it up the hill and woke, came back up the hill with it. And the next thing you know, all this stuff is set up with all this spaghetti wires coming out of these suitcases. One of them had a little tiny TV screen over here, and then a bunch of stuff over here, and then they could make it play Pong. Remember Pong? Yes. They could make opinion. it play Pong. That was one of the things it could do, but actually it was the Lynn machine in its infancy. And what Roger Lynn had gotten, so he had gotten it so far, but then he was stuck. And then Andre was in there with him looking at it. They were up days and then go to sleep, fall asleep doing it and wake back up and they're still doing. And I would make food and feed them and they would keep going and working on it. And all these cords and ribbons of, of, of wires and everything was running everywhere at our house. And then one day Andre goes, I need to lay down. I, I know this. He said, I know this, I know this. I know we're, we're missing something. I know we're missing something. And he goes and he lays down and he comes back 20 minutes, 30 minutes later, and he walks to the kitchen counter, takes a piece of paper, and starts drawing out this circuitry. He said, Roger, you've got to make it do this, and then you'll be able to make it do. And then, next thing you know, that was the Lin machine. That was it. Mm-hmm. And uh, then they had to get it manufactured because it was in, still in all these weird suitcase things. So it was in the back of, we had a uh, at that time, a, a rock and roll van that had Max hand on the license tag. It was all purple metal flake. It was crazy. We had white airline seats inside. It was just a crazy van. And that was the band car. And so we put it in the back of the van and then we had bought that van at Galpin Ford here in LA, out in the Valley. And it needed, its. it was a new van. Then it needed to be taken in for its, once you drive a new car, for, for a thousand miles. Then you have to take it back to the dealership and let them, whatever. So that was in the suitcases in the back. So we went back to get pick up the van. The suitcases were gone. So this is, they had a huge big repair bay and all these people working there. So Roger Lynn just started crying. Oh God, oh God, oh God you know, like that. And so Andre said, no, wait. Hold on. He walks out into the middle of the driveway at Galpin Ford, which is like this huge acreage of things. I've been there. (laughs) You've been to Galpin Ford. I I grew up in that area, yeah. So you know where I'm talking about. Yeah. Andre walks out in the middle of that and he goes, I've got $500 right here. And he had five $100 bills. He said the suitcases that were in the back of that fucking van like that. <laughs> I want all those suitcases intact in with nothing missing. I want them back right here where I'm standing. You've got 30 minutes before I call the cops. And he took a brick and put the $500 under it. He said, if you bring those suitcases back out here, nobody's gonna ask you a question. Nobody's going to jail, but I want them to be intact and I want them here in 30 minutes. And in 15 minutes, those cases were back out there on that lot, on that spot. And the $500 was gone. Mm -hmm. And we got it all back. And that's how Roger Lynn got to make his land machine and the rest is history with drum machines and technology and eight oh eights and everything that followed after that. But yeah, that was that was the deal. Wow,
1: he- he- hearing you explain all this, uh, Maxanne, you know, it's really connecting the dots for me. You know, having been familiar with Andre when he did the the Mandrè records, right. you know, and that was such a a techie uh, aesthetic and you know futuristic approach and all that so now knowing that much about him it totally makes sense
0: yeah well and his whole thing the whole mask marauder thing wearing the 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 covering his face and wanting to do this music and being there i produced his first album i produced that album and what because he he wanted to get the record deal because all that the first of that was done on motown it wasn't on warners it was on motown and he had to At that time, Barry Gordy was still running the company. He hadn't stepped down. He was running the company. So this, for Motown to be interested, they were interested in him. For them to be interested in something like that meant that, to me, that was like, Motown really wants to do something different, because they have never done anything that far removed (laughs) from their Detroit sound. You know? So he says, what can I? I was getting my hair done one day, and this is I used to go and get my hair done at this place called Sheer Joy. And Sheer Joy was a salon that had a contract with Motown to do all of their artist hair. They did all of their uh, album covers. And and if somebody was going to be on TV, then somebody from Sheer Joy would go do Diana Ross's hair or whatever, right? And, and so um, I was getting my hair done there. And... The people, at, well, they were talking about um, how Barry. They were because I, I, Billy D. Williams. I used to see him at the salon. I used to see Diana Ross. All these people there: Smokey Robinson, Smokey Robinson's wife Claudette, all everybody. Thelma Houston. They would all be there. And so they were talking about. I said, "What kind of person is Barry Gordy?" I mean, I hear of all these rumors about him, but really. What kind of man is he? You know, I wanted to kind of know that. And um, they said, well, he, you know, he's a hands-on. He's a hands-on guy. He he knows about, he really knows music. In fact, he wrote Money. The song, that's a money don't get everything is true. He collaborated on that song. And that was one of the first hits that made, that kicked off Motown Records Happening. I said, oh, he wrote that song? That's his song. Wow. They said, and he always loves anybody who does that song. Oh, if you do that song, he'll give you the world. But I didn't know that that was going to connect to him liking or investigating Andre's music to sign him to that label. That was like just the off the cuff thing that happened at the beauty salon. Then things. So when he says, well, Motown is interested, this guy named Winston Monseke was uh, representing Motown, and he he had formed this relationship with Andre, and he was talking to Andre on the phone and coming by our house every day and, and looking at all the rolling instruments and listening to some of the new music that we were trying to put together. I was still writing songs, and so he goes... So you've got to do something because he's Winston is originally from Trinidad. And so, well, you've got to do something that will grab the boss's ear, you know. So I'm just hearing him talk to Andre. I'm over here playing piano, but I hear them talking. I'm playing. And then I said, so once Winston left, I said, I have an idea. You want to get this deal? He says, what? I said, you got to record that song, Money. He said, Money? That old song? Now, remember, he's trying to be Mr. Spaceman, right? I said, yeah, that song, but you don't have to do it like that. We can do something else with it. And he goes, he said, and he was like kind of frustrated. I said, we're going to max it. That's what we used to call it. Take a song, twist it up, make it different, reform it. And do it like that. I said, let me, I I can max in it and you can use it and do it for your, for your Mandre thing. That money, 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 that's what I want. I did that arrangement for him and he goes over there, he gives it to, well, he gives it the arrangement, he makes a cassette of it, gives it to Winston Winston plays it for Iris, who, Winston was actually married to Iris Gordy at that time. Iris and Winston play it for Barry Gordy. The rest is history. They give Andre everything he wants. <laughs> <laughs> it worked. So that was like, so Andre goes, how did you know that? I said, while well, I was getting my hair done one day, a few months ago, they were saying, Anybody who does that song, Barry just loses it over him, you know. So you know, but you do a different version of it, and it was like, and then he added his, you know, what I call space cantata to it, and and the rest is history, and it became like a big thing. So that's
1: that explains that because I mean, at the time, he was so uh, what he was doing was so atypical of Motown. I mean,
0: exactly.
1: Yeah. But, I mean, but we did that,
0: that song. Yeah. So we put he did that song and that that cracked the that cracked the safe open and he was and he was in like Flint. Yeah. Wow.
1: Going back to this, this was the second Max Ann album. Mm-hmm. Um is this the one that you would say is the one that best crystallized what Maxanne?
0: Yes, definitely.
1: Yeah.
0: That um, was because and and the, and the and the times at that at that time there was a lot of upheaval and lots of things going on with people uh, coming to conclusions about rights you know women's rights and people's rights and that kind of thing was a lot and uh, in, and being empowered individually they they were calling it the me generation then me That means like you got to get yourself together and people were doing transcendental meditation and namaste. That was like a whole big thing was coming on with all of that and knowing. So I was not I'm not a religious person. And so I would say I would say sometimes in interviews, I I would say people thought I was controversial because I would say I don't believe in religion, but I believe in a higher power. I believe in a higher intelligence. You know, are you talking about space people? What are you talking about? Because Andre had done that space, (laughs) done the space thing. So they thought, are you talking about aliens? No, just, I'm just saying, I think that there, that you have a God in you. There's a spark of that, whatever is the spark of light that wakes us up and our hearts start to beat when we're born and we take that first breath, that we all get our equal portion of that. Everybody gets an equal portion. One, nobody gets more than the other. What you do with it is what sets you apart. What you take, that spark that starts your heart, and then you get, you start going in life, and if you pay attention, I think that your spirit will lead you to what you're supposed to be doing, And and if you really believe it and trust it, you will follow that. And so, but people get hung up and go on detours, they do drugs, they they fall in love with the wrong person, they have babies too early, or they don't have babies at all. Or they decide they get desperate and they wanna rob a bank or they, they end up getting too angry and they kill somebody. And they are, there's not the universe doing that to you, that's you making choices. You have these choices you can make. So I would say those kind of things and people are like, well, how do you know this? You know? But it's like, I just, I live it. I'm, 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 here I am. I'm, I'm a girl from Tulsa, Oklahoma, who never went anywhere. My parents were not in the entertainment industry. Nobody grandfathered me in, none of that. And I ended up going around the world three times before I was 21. How does that happen? Do you say, I want to do something with my life and this is going to happen? Or what, what is that? I can't, I think that it, Is You order it up, like I told my friend. I'm going to do that. Just like, yeah, in your dreams. But I knew that I was going to do it. You know?
1: And you had a great version of the Curtis Mayfield tune. Check out your mind on this one. Um, Was there anything else particular on that record that you were especially
0: proud of? Oh, I liked... um, uh, let i think it's let me be your friend on that song on that album or am i confused
1: no it's not
0: read the read the tracks to me
1: um Moan to the music love is near good things stone crazy telling you feeling the answer check out stone
0: crazy stone crazy yeah and near and and uh love is near i like that yeah, those, those I want
1: to rest my mind in traveling.
0: and traveling. And and well, I like I want to rest my mind and travel. I like th- those four songs. Those are my. I really like those songs.
1: So, how do you feel about how this one was received?
0: You know, uh, well, we actually that's that album was well was actually received much was even wide wider. We have got a wider reception on it. And actually that album sold a lot more records than Warner Brothers reported to us, but we didn't find that out until way, way later. You know, they didn't, you know, they didn't tell us what was happening. They did a lot of weird stuff. Like uh the first album, uh, and mind you, this is before technology had really taken over and swept in. Uh we had a lot of underground airplay. And so Everywhere, people wanted to buy the record. They couldn't buy it because it wasn't in the stores. Warner Brothers had it all pressed up, and they had it in their warehouse, sitting in boxes, but they wouldn't send it to the stores. Why? We don't know. So we found this out. And we knew that they had pressed up like 100,000 copies. So we got together. Remember, this is no technology, no cameras. No technology, no cameras. We rented a truck. We got a truck. And some other friends that I won't name their names because some of them are people who are still upstanding in the community. They went over. They bribed a guard. They went into the warehouse, and we stole our boxes and boxes of our albums. And we sent them to the stores. We sent them so people could buy them. But that's what Warner Brothers did. I have no idea why they did it. They wouldn't do it. People wanted it. So then we find out years later, I guess it's a statute of limitations, that we almost sold well, we sold like a million copies in in uh throughout in Asia and um down down under like New Zealand and, and Australia, that kind of thing. We have a huge following there right now, and I've never been to Australia or New Zealand. Now Andre found it out because he traveled there with Frank Zappa. And when he arrived there, he had never been to Australia either, but Frank Zappa had been, and so they went there, he's playing, he had joined with them, they were doing a gig. When he got off the plane, you know, sometimes they have the some radio station who's sponsoring the shows will show up and be there with cameras and television. Look who landed today and is gonna be doing shows at the blah, 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 and it was Frank Zappa and his band, the Mothers of Invention, blah, blah, blah. But there were people there with cameras who wanted to talk to Andre Lewis because he was a part of Max Ann. That freaked him out. He was like, how do you even know about Max Ann? Are you kidding? You know how many records you sold here? We were wondering when you were going to come here and tour. Hmm. But Warner Brothers never told us that. And they also didn't pay us for that. They didn't pay us our royalties or anything. They didn't give us. You got the
1: contract that you wanted, but they didn't. Come they caught. didn't honor
0: it. Yeah. They didn't honor it. We got the contract. Well, we made the contract was actually with um Phil's, Phil Phil uh Phil Phil um Phil and Frank with Capricorn, and then one is, was the distributor. You see, the, so that was like sort of like Capricorn was in the middle, then Warner Brothers was on the other end, and we were over here. And so just, they didn't pay us for it and uh, they, they never, no one ever gave us um, a quarter report. They never, ever did that. So it was crazy. They gave us the budget, the money to make the records. But they and they paid all of our bills and they gave us our, our upfront money, every album that we did, everything they did, they gave us, but nobody ever gave us a quarterly report, any kind of accounting, nothing. We tried to get it, nobody knew it. What, huh? What? They acted like they were deaf, dumb, and blind. And that's what they did. Wow.
1: Who who were some of the um acts that you guys shared a stage with? Um, at that time, and, and what was the Max Sands show like?
0: Oh, well, uh, we did, we, we we played, we opened, well, I tell you, we opened for Earth, Wind and & Fire, and yep. then we went on tours at some of the big theaters like in, in Chicago and D.C. and Philadelphia and Boston. We played those, those venues a lot. We played Atlanta, and so we played uh, Undisputed Truth, Rolls Royce uh cool in the gang war you know all those people would be on shows with us um J- jimmy Castor bunch um mm-hmm. taj mahal uh, you know just a bunch of people all kinds of uh, artists edwin Birdsong, song mm-hmm. uh, uh who had his own he, had, he was ahead of his time too <clears throat> He didn't do a lot, but he he had some really good music. We played with a lot of people who were really really talented. We opened for play, you know. We were on shows with a lot of great people,
1: you know. Because I mean, you guys were sort of a hybrid of you know R and B, funk, rock. Mm-hmm. So I would think that at times it might have been kind of hard to slot you.
0: Yeah, well, uh, that was the thing. We didn't want to be slotted per se, we just wanted to play. And so we played on all kinds of shows. We played with, with it would be all rock and roll on one show and us, and then it would be all black artists and us, you know, like that kind of thing. So it was always a mixed media of people.
1: This ended up being the, the final record, um, I think in 74. Yeah. yeah. 74, so
0: what, what that happened, record was recorded in um in um in Homewood, Alabama.
1: You know what happened in the making of that record and why didn't it end up being the final release?
0: Because um the band was um well Andre basically wanted to he really was thinking his mandre thing was gonna skyrocket because we were already working on that he was already he was always working on the Mandre thing like from he always wanted to do something like that so it started to really take up a lot of his time because he wanted he had to get all these head pieces custom built and how he was going to look and what he was going to do and he was trying to really put a band together a different group of people for that and So he started to kind of neglect the Max Ann stuff, and he also had then been introduced to freebasing cocaine. Hmm. And at the beginning, I didn't know that because I don't do drugs, so I don't know any sign of Drugness, drugginess. (laughs) I didn't know that. And um, in fact, nobody actually knew it at the beginning. We didn't know that. He just started to be like gone. Nobody knew where he was, like for days. Then he would come back and he would look awful. Then he'd take a shower and he would be so tired. And then he would just have to sleep and sleep and sleep and sleep. Then he'd wake back up and then he would be cranky and mean and And, and just weird. So I I was like, what's going on with you? What's happening? I thought he was, I thought he was having a a nervous breakdown or something like maybe feeling too much pressure, you know, trying to do too much. And that wasn't it at all. It was drugs Mm -hmm. and very addictive drug kind of thing. And it was nothing you can't do. I, I called some of my friends who, who, uh, I call I have a friend who's a psychologist who works who majors in helping people recover from drug addiction. And he said, this drug addiction is different. It changes your brain. It changes your everything. And once your personality is affected by it, you you're not gonna ever be the same person again. Really. You'll be a person, but you won't be the person that 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 everybody knows you to be. You'll be different. And he was that guy that told me that was right on with that. So one day I just said, "I don't want to do that anymore. I'm, I'm out. I'm going. I'm leaving." And he begged me not to leave, but I left anyway. What year, was, that,
1: what, what year was that? Would you say that was
0: 1978? 1970, mm-hmm. 1978. I was like, "No, I can't, can't do this anymore." And that was uh, the year that the reason why I decided mm-hmm. to, to leave was that I had uh, I had been diagnosed as having cancer. And that kind of freaked me out. Right. And I was like, oh, ah! you know, but I, I, <laughs> I mm-hmm. went to theaters and I got is as, as fate would have it. I had the top oncologist in the world as my doctor. And I'm not kidding, the top oncologist in the world. Dr. Robert O. Futeron was his name. And he was the chief, he was chief of nuclear medicine at Cedars-Sinai Hospital. And he took my case. I, my doctor, the, the guy who was my doctor said, I can't be your doctor anymore, but I'm going to send you to this person who is a better doctor for what's happening. And I went, okay, does this mean I'm going to die? No, he goes, no, no, no. Just go to, go to Cedars. He gave me all my medical records and I drove over there and I went and I was scared and I walked into this big room. It was like a loft space, a medical loft. They had a big row of chairs and people were sitting in the chairs getting what I know now is chemotherapy. And, um, Another group of people were sitting there. I had never saw people in burkas, those black burkas, you know, from the Middle East, where the women have the thing where their eyes are just here. Everything else is covered in black. There was a a group of women sitting there, eight women sitting there against this big white wall. It's like out of a movie. And they were all sitting there in these burkas just like this, and they were waiting to see Dr. Futuron, and they had flown from Saudi Arabia to come see Dr. Futuron. Mm-hmm. And there were some other people in there, and I was like, oh, this just like, uh this looks like, oh, uh, it's gonna be horrible. And I went in, I had a, he looked at my red, medical records, and I looked up on this big, huge board, and it was all these names written on the board and some notations, like a big board you write on with a, with a Sharpie or something. And right at the bottom was my name. And it was written in red. Everybody else's name was written in black. My name was in red. And when I saw that, I thought, that means I'm in the red <laughs> and I'm going to die soon. That's what I thought. And I started crying uncontrollably. And Dr. Fuderon was sitting at his desk and he just turned his chair around and looked out of his window while I was trying to compose myself. And I was like crying so hard that, you know, when you're crying so deep and it's gut-wrenching crying. And you can't get, it's almost like you can't breathe. It, it, it's, you're, you're so hurt and so scared. And I was like that. And he turned back around really slowly. And he had a jar with Tootsie Roll pops in, on his desk. And he took one out and he unwrapped it and he put it in his mouth. he sit there for a minute licking on this tootsie roll pop, He says, okay. Okay. So now you can shut the fuck up <laughs> just like that. And it shocked me that he said that to me. I said, that's a horrible thing to say. Do you understand? You're, I see right here, right now, you've got my name written in red. I'm going to die. Said, that's not what that means. Why, why, why did you get that from? I said, cause my name is the only name that's written in red. He said, You're the only person on the list who's gonna walk out of here and be fine. That's why your name is in red. And that means that I'm gonna do this surgery on you tomorrow. I'm moving you up because what you have is very aggressive but we are catching it at the beginning and I am gonna defeat it. That's why your name is in red. And can you be here tomorrow morning? Don't eat anything and blah, 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 blah. Read this sheet and do that and do that. And I was like, oh, oh, oh. And he said, and everybody else out there in that room that you saw when you came in here said, yeah. He said, I'm keeping them comfortable until I can come up with a better solution. Mm-hmm. And I walked out of there like, I felt like I had been drugged behind them. A truck. I just, I was so like spent from the emotional roller coaster of it all. And I came back and I told Andre, well, th- I was still with him at that point. And I told him, and this was the, the deciding factor for me I told him, I have to go in the hospital. I have cancer. I have to have surgery tomorrow. And I called him on his, on a, where at this number he had an answering service that he checked all the time. And I left him this message and he came home angry because I had called him and said this. And he said, you're just saying that because you want some attention and you're you, because you don't want me as you, cause you think you're going to stop me from getting high. You're not stopping me from doing what the fuck I want to do. And I was like, Whoa, no, I really have to go in the hospital. I really do have cancer and I'm really scared as shit. He said, Oh, I said, can you take me to the hospital? I have to go there at 6 a.m. Yeah, I'll take you. And he had this car called a Bricklin, which was had gull wings, a sports car. And it closed like this. It was an American-built sports car. It was really fast and had gull wing doors. And I got in that car, and he drove like a bat out of hell down the hill. We're like careening around curves and stuff, getting me there. I'm like, why are we driving so fast? He said, because you've got cancer. That's what he said. And we get there in front, in the middle of the street. You've been to Cedars. You know where Cedars is here. Yeah. He drives right up and just in the center of the street, pops the door, comes up. He says, okay, get out. here. You're, you're here. And I got out of the car and I had a little bag with me with all my toiletries and stuff. And in the middle of the street, and he and rubber and drove away while the doors were going back down and i said god spirit of the universe if you let me get through this i will not be with this person i will move on if this is if this if, if this is your way of telling me move the fuck on done 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 and done and i walked into the hospital and they said, oh, you're on time, come on in, sign this, do this. And, and I went upstairs, and they got me in a bed and, th- and then Dr. Futeron came in there to see me. I was like, do you ever go home? Cause he used to dress like Charlie Brown, you know, from the cartoon. Yeah. He wore a beanie hat that had a whirly on top of it <laughs> when he would go and see patients. He had on cargo shorts and sneakers with crazy socks that didn't match and T-shirts that said, nice nice day for nothing. Do you have any weed? And stuff like that on his shirt. And then a lab coat that said, Dr. Fuderon," Dr. Robert O. Fruteron, chief of nuclear medicine on it. He had his white coat. (laughs) But this is the way he- Eccentric genius. He was just that, a very uh, absolutely eccentric genius. When he would come in my room, he would kick the door open with his foot, bam. Come in, like, huh. thought it was the cops, didn't you? <laughs> no. <laughs> Why would the cops be kicking the door in in a hospital room, doctor? Because, okay, all right, maybe it's a stretch. And then he got examine me. It was like it, this was this was my doctor. But that day that I had checked into the hospital, I was very sad, and so I couldn't. I wasn't crying, gut wrenching crying, but my, the tears were just rolling out of my eyes. I couldn't stop them. It was like I was full of water and it was spilling over. I couldn't stop it. It was just, I was talking, having conversation. Yes, but tears were rolling down my face. just rolling down my face. And he said, you know, I was going to do your surgery this morning, but I'm not going to do it now because you're not in a frame of mind to get surgery this morning. I said, well, what's going to change? He said, When I put you under for this operation, you're going to have to be under for a long time. Do you understand what that means? And then he said, when I call you and ask you to wake up, I want you to wake up. I want you to want to wake up. That's important that you want to wake up. So whatever is making you feel this sad, because I was sad about Andre, I was sad about my life, I was sad about having cancer, I, was, I really was really sad. And he said, I want you to want to wake up. I'm going to do my job, but your job is when I call you out of that mist, I want you to fight to come back. I want you to open your eyes and come back. So right now you're not ready. So then I'm gonna send somebody to talk to you. And he sends this woman in and she's a psychologist. And she, just, she asked me about what was going on. And I was really just honest and open with her. And I told her everything was happening and that I was a singer and that this is happening. And my life is now, it was like going great. And now it's like going to shit and now I'm here. And I am, am I gonna die or what? And, and if, if I'm going to die, I don't want to get cut on. If it's going to take me out anyway, I don't want to go through the trauma of a surgery. You know, the whole thing. She goes, no, you're going to be fine. Dr. Funeron, he knows what he's doing. You know, you have you can have total confidence in him. It's going to happen. And when you really realize who he is, I'll bring you some information about him. Because you obviously don't know what a lucky girl you are. And she brought when I started reading all these things about him, he was like, really? known worldwide and he was considered to be the number one surgeon for onco- number one oncologist in the world and that's why all these people were coming you had to be you had to be on a list to get to see him like people were waiting two years to see him mm-hmm. that kind of thing and i got sent from this guy's office to his office and he took me in and was ready to operate on me that's why my name was in red he moved me up fast, and that, you know. So I've been very fortunate in my whole life. I, I'm I was cancer free, and I'm still am, and here I am, a wow. hundred years later.
1: That, that's and a I, very happy ending from a very low point.
0: Exactly, but that's how the that's how Max Ann, actually the band finished out. Because after that, I didn't want to, I don't care what Andre wanted to do. I didn't want to be around him at all. I didn't, I just, that was it. I didn't want to do it.